This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey there, my name is Ricky Smith, and I'm the founder of Random Acts of Kindness Everywhere, a nonprofit that simply does exactly what it says. Promote kindness everywhere. We know the world is crazy right now. If you are searching for a podcast that has a deeper conversation about race, my co-host Angel Gray and I will be discussing everything going on right now on our podcast, Random X of Podcast on Blue Wire Podcast Network. To find out more, go to rakenow.org. Enjoy the show. Baker Mayfield, undraftable, off my board. The Cleveland Browns select Baker Mayfield. Welcome to the OBR Film Breakdown Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Burns. We are coming at you with a great episode today that is presented by the presenting sponsor of Blue Wire Podcast. That would be betonline.ag. Using the promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, go there, get your welcome bonus, and take advantage of the newfound betting opportunities as sports begin to trickle back in, golf, UFC, and beyond. You can play online poker. You can play blackjack. Go to betonline.ag. That's the online wagering solution. All right, guys, we have a great podcast featuring the first interview of two is with Evan Silva. He is with EstablishTheRun.com. Evan has been doing you know, a bunch of great NFL coverage for a long time, and I'm always very interested in his opinion on the Browns. We did one last year in the offseason, so I think we got some good information from Evan. I'd like to get a whole NFL perspective guy to come in and kind of give his thoughts on the team. So let's get over to that interview with Evan Silva. Evan, we're going to dive right in, man. I'm curious, after 2019's tumultuous lead-up to the season and what ended up being a pretty massive disappointment for the Browns, just, mm-hmm. sort, of, uh, just sort of where you're at with this 2020 group, and, and it's, been quiet. it's been quiet for the whole league most, for the most part, but just where you're at with the 2020 group and what you think they can do. Well, I think that from a personnel standpoint, um, their approach, you know, what they're trying to do is they're trying to build a physical football team. You know, I think uh, – they hired Kevin Stefanski, who coordinated one of the best rushing attacks in football in Minnesota last year. Their biggest moves in free agency and the draft were both upgrades at offensive tackle. They spent the offseason collecting tight ends. They made Austin Hooper the highest paid tight end in the league. Um, not only did they keep David Njoku, but they exercised his fifth year option, which I think, you know, they want to keep him around. They want to they, they want to see what he's he's got left to work with because I mean He's definitely given us flashes, and he's very, very young still. Um, they drafted the Mackey Award winner in the fourth round. They're going to play more 12. They're going to play more 13. Uh, they gave Kareem Hunt a second-round tender when they very likely could have kept him with an original-round tender because he's a third-round pick, and I doubt that anybody would have you know, tried to get him on a, on a big deal, uh, especially mm-hmm. the position that he plays and with his background. And analytically, I think that they realize – that building this way is what's best for Baker Mayfield because they're going to throw the ball out of 12 and 13, and they're going to be a play-action team. And the Vikings last year under Kevin Stefanski, they were uh, number five in the NFL in uh, play-action rate, and Baker has by far been at his best as a play-action passer. I'm with it. Quick, decisive things for Baker are important. It's going to be important for him to stay on schedule. As I've talked about, as you know, and I think it's going to be particularly interesting to see how that pairing works. I mean, you know, the guy loves tight ends. Baker does. Kevin does. That's an ideal pairing. And we're kind of transitioned to Baker here, leading to my second question. And that's, you know, Baker is a prospect, highly efficient, pretty highly accurate at Oklahoma. 
the numbers, the data, the charting all backs it up. 2019, or sorry, 2018 rookie season, for the most part, pretty accurate. Some decisions that, that left you a little confused here and there, but that's rookie football mm-hmm. stuff. He has his first bad year in 2019, and, mm-hmm. and you could probably say dating back to his, his true freshman season there at Texas Tech. Is 2019 an aberration to you, or is it uh, a sign of concerning things in, in, the, in the next few years of his career? And, you know, I think that it's the easiest way, the easiest kind of approach to this is just blame it on the guys who are gone. Um, but I really do think that so much of it can be attributed to coaching. And you know, I was rooting for Freddie Kitchens. I mean, I think he's a good man. He's an easy guy to pull for. But I think it just became evident that he was in over his head as a play caller. And there was a lot of disagreement within the coaching staff, I thought, especially on offense, watching those Todd Monken press conferences every every Tuesday or, or whatever it was, you could just tell that there was a lot of disagreement in that room. There were way too many distractions on top of that. And I think that Freddie Kitchens just was unable to handle it all and it trickled onto the field. And I don't think that Kitchens built an offense that was suited to play to Baker's strengths. Um, so obviously the drop-off in Baker Mayfield's play in year two was substantial. There's no denying that. It's a huge red flag on his career. It, it really is. You want to see these guys with an upward trajectory, no question, and players that, you know, have that first-year flash and then take big steps back. I mean, if just from a probabilistic standpoint, his, you know, his, his, his probability of hitting and becoming like a, you know, a future franchise quarterback went down significantly. But I do think this new regime – better understands how to build around Baker Mayfield. I think that they are specifically building around Baker Mayfield and doing what they believe uh, is in Baker's best interest. And again, that's a lot of play action. That's being a physical football team. That's being you know, able to, if, if their, their quarterback is going to be streaky and they have other means of generating offense, you know, they, they need that to be a consistent theme. Um, and I, I like how they are building – they, they put so much into the offensive line, man. And that's a, a whole reversal on what John Dorsey was doing. I mean, he, I think that you could look back and say that what he was doing with the offensive line was borderline irresponsible uh, with Greg Robinson and uh, relying on uh, Austin Corbett and, you know, trading away Kevin Zeitler. And, you know, I think that, I, I think that they, they got away uh, from what their strengths were the, uh, the year before. And I think that uh, the, the Browns current put so much in the offensive line like they I think they're building the right way yeah and they deserve credit right I mean they uh the 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 Browns have failed so many quarterbacks before Baker Mayfield this will be the first time and whatever Baker's end result is whatever he becomes ultimately good or bad or in between it's not going to be from lack of trying on the Browns part and I, and I genuinely haven't don't think I've been able to say that for since they returned in 99. I mean, I, I, and that's good. That's the right sort of approach. And I think they've done all the right things. And you talked about a second ago, sort of other things that they're trying to do to ease the burden on Baker. They have a phenomenal running back, Nick Chubb. Pro Football Focus has put out a lot of metrics lately about him being maybe the best running back in the NFL. I have him as a top five guy. I'm curious from a, from a big picture NFL standpoint, somebody who covers the entire league, uh, watches more of the entire league than I do, because I'm sort of singularly focus on the Browns all the time. What does his 2020 outlook look like to you? Is he, is he the running back to have in fantasy football this year? And, and, and as far as translatable actual football stuff, is it like 1,500 yards or bust? Is that the expectation? Yeah, just beginning with the real football stuff. I mean, I think that he is one of the easiest evaluations in the league. I think that if you're talking about, you know, if we were to just pull out like the seven or eight best, the sheer ball carriers, the best runners in the league, uh, I think that Nick Nick Chubb is in a conversation of about um, about eight guys: uh, Christian McCaffrey, Saquon Barkley, Ezekiel Elliott, Dalvin Cook, Derrick Henry, Joe Mixon, and then I think that Josh Jacobs has a real chance mm-hmm. to get in the group. I actually already think that he's in that group. But again, just purely as a runner, um, I would probably out of that group, I would take Chubb over McCaffrey, Zeke, and Dalvin Cook and Mixon. Um, although I think that Mixon is going to have a really big year this year. And that would leave uh, uh, three of the best uh, pure ball carriers, in my opinion. That would be Derrick Henry, Saquon Barkley, and Nick Chubb. So just from a real football standpoint, I think as a pure, like, thoroughbred runner, workhorse, bell cow back, he's a top three back in the league. Now, from a fantasy standpoint, 
after Kareem Hunt was uh, came back from suspension midway through last year, Nick Chubb uh, was just almost absent from the passing game. And uh, that's a really, really big deal because almost every fantasy league at this point is a PPR league. And, um, you know, it, when the Browns fall behind, like we think, you know, Kareem Hunt's going to be in the game. Kareem Hunt could even have a bigger rushing role than he did last year. Yeah. Um, they gave him what I think was a, you know, a slightly exorbitant tender. I, th- I really think they could have kept him with the original round tender for cheaper, but they wanted to keep him clearly and they gave him the second round tender. Um, so Nick Chubb is only like a fringe top 10 running back in fantasy. Uh, but he is still like a, um, a, a very, very, very early second round pick uh, and a great pick. And I mean, I don't think it would be dumb to take him at the end of the first. I mean, he could lead the NFL in rushing, you, you know, like that's very much in play. One move that I didn't even mention that the Browns made further um, trying to, you know, uh, implement what I think is is uh, to be a bit, one of the most physical football teams in football in, in the league is uh, they traded for Andy Janovich. Um, so that, again, just really indicates that they want to be able to, um, you know, impose their will at times. I think their quarterback, you know, might just end up being a, a very streaky player who is very, very high highs and, you know, maybe some lower lows. Um, and that you know, consistent force on the ground, being a dominant running team, uh, can help balance that out for Baker Mayfield. Yeah, Janovich is somebody I've talked about quite a bit and, and uh, how he ties into this offense and what Stefanski's able to do with him and that sort of C.J. Ham role will be fascinating to me. And you look back at the Viking stats too, Evan, like I know Dalvin Cook isn't necessarily the exact same runner as Nick Chubb, but um, 250 carries. And this was – the Vikings were a high run rate team, right? I think they were close to the top of the league in – second and long rush rates. They were up there, at least. I don't know yeah. the exact Yeah, they, but... they were they, – yes, they were. Yeah, and I don't know if that is a Zimmer ultimatum. Like, hey, man, we have a really good defense. I don't want right. you really bearing this on Kirk Cousins' shoulders. I don't know. But if you look at their stats, Alexander Madison had 100 carries, 462 yards, approaches 500 yards, and in himself doesn't really get involved in the passing game. Dalvin Cook gets 63 targets. But I think that that's what they see. And you're talking about that, how Freddie Kitchens used Nick uh, – Kareem Hunt, I should say – almost like a slot gadget play type player. They didn't give him a ton of true running back backfield carries. So I think that switch is coming. And uh, I don't know how that balances out. I don't know what that looks like. A split, does, does Kareem Hunt get to 100 carries like Madison? I know Dalvin Cook was hurt. So there's some of that happening too. But like, I don't know. I think it's fascinating. I think I, I, I think you're, you're spot on about the real football talent and also spot on about we don't really know what, A, how much Stefanski's going to want to throw the football, and B, how heavily involved Kareem Hunt will be because he is a duly faceted running back out of the backfield. That can, and, and they love screen game. Like, they, they're proficient at it yep. in Minnesota. They'll be proficient at it in Cleveland, and they coach it up the right way, and they'll use it a lot. And, uh, and, and, and Kareem is very good at it. So we will see. That, that's a pretty fascinating subplot to the year is how, they, how, how Stefanski changes from maybe what Zimmer was holding him to. So – Keep an eye on that. Now we're switching to defense. I really just oh, think that, you know, their, um, their focus is going to be just being on, like, their, their, their optimizing efficiency. Yep. Um, and that is going to be, you know, a lot more play action. That is going to be um, throwing out of um, sets that look like they're, you know, run-focused sets. Um, you know, and that's going to be um, taking a lot of shots downfield, I think. And we're going to see uh, Odell Beckham – uh, sort of in the Stefan Diggs role, mm-hmm. and Landry Moore in the, the um, Adam Thielen. Now Adam Thielen was banged up last year, obviously, but you know he's he's a really good player, and I think we'll see Jarvis Landry in the Adam Thielen role. Um, and then again, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see like how exactly do they incorporate David and Joku? Because yeah. you know if if they can if they feel like they, he can catch the ball consistently and they can, they can rely on him to catch the ball consistently. I mean, what a mismatch creator in the slot. And, you know, I don't know what the deal is with Rashard Higgins, and I'm sure that he's going to get, you know, a look. But um, if David Njoku can step forward and be like their, you know, mismatch slot weapon, I mean, they're going to have some sick explosiveness on the field with Austin Hooper, Jarvis Landry, and Odell Beckham um, all on the same field together. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure – I've thought about this a lot. Other than bringing Shanahan back to Cleveland or bringing maybe McVay to Cleveland, I don't know that there could be a better pairing. I mean, just for the quarterback, you talk about the wide receivers, uh, you know, within within Odell and Jarvis, who are guys who are really downfield separators. So if they can give guys a double move, 
you know, maybe a post corner, a, a, a PCP, the post corner post stuff that they do so well in this offense. Like Jarvis and Odell make people miss when they make two cuts. If they make two cuts, typically DBs have a hard time hanging with them. And when there's so much play action and run game action that sells that and gives time for guys to get downfield and make those double moves that they're so proficient at, it's just like you take the offense from Minnesota and you just plug Cleveland right into it. And it's like all of the pieces are there and you mix in David Njoku who could be, is a better athlete than Irv Smith and how he can translate to being in that role. Hooper is, I think a better, uh, a pass catching tight end than Rudolph. So it's like, I, I don't you know, know how it could get yep. any better from a fit standpoint. And I'm sure that's what the Browns brass was talking about behind closed doors in Berea, but like offensively it is, it is all the cliches, hand in glove, whatever you want to say, it's all there. It just has to – they have to gel. They have to get it all together. And uh, I really don't feel as concerned as I did last year. Like, we talked just a minute ago about Stefanski and what he leaves Zimmer looking like. Stefanski just seems to be a guy who has that sort of approach together, has been building toward this moment his entire career, from dating back to when he sat down in film rooms and was watching the Kubiak offense. He talked about, I want to run this someday when I'm a head coach. And – it just is all laid out in formula for him. It, it, it abruptly happened to Freddie Kitchens, and then Freddie gets away from Greg Williams giving advice or in-game management, and then it just is like it's too much for the man. And you're right. I loved the guy that Freddie Kitchens was, but just some people are built to be position coaches, and some people are built to be head coaches. Yeah. So I think that that is, is hopefully we can see a differentiator as a guy who can run a football team, not just the players, respect I've said this all offseason on this pod so listeners have heard me say it but get the coaches respect because that's something that between Hugh Jackson and Greg Williams and and Freddie Kitchens we had the Browns have not had somebody who the play not not just the players believe him but his coaching staff around him isn't constantly challenging him and thinking they're wrong so hopefully there's that collaboration going on I want to talk defense and I know you we only have a limited amount of time here Joe Woods is is Listen, he's from my, he, his first coaching job was my alma mater, so he had me from the get-go. So um, I, I, I think I like what Joe is saying. He's, he, he, he had some success with the Broncos, obviously was a part of his successful tenure defensively with the 49ers. He's talking about, I want to run an amount, you know, a, a lack of a better word, a potpourri of all the best defenses out there. He's got to overcome a weak linebacker group. There's no denying it. Perhaps the weakest linebacker group in the NFL. They can prove me wrong, but as it sits right now, I think it's pretty close to being true. They're, they're stacking safeties. They're stacking versatile corners. They're trying to add as much as they can up front. How do you see it holistically fitting together? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that my take on the defense is just going to support yours. When I, when I first look at it, you know, it looks really strong at the front and at the back. You know, I, and I think that you've got Miles Garrett coming back in his age 24 season, and he's a legit – DPOY candidate. Adrian Claiborne finally gives you some legit depth up front. He can play outside and inside. Um, I think that Andrew Billings was a smart, cheap pickup for them as a sort of snap eater um, who's, you know, not going to get you killed and, you know, not going to win you the game, but not going to get you killed behind uh, Richardson and Ogunjobi. And then with Jordan Elliott in the third round, if he comes on quickly, which I think he could, um, I think that they could finally have the makings of, you know, a rotation where they can bring guys in waves up front um and then you look at the back joe and joe woods is a dbs coach by trade so he should have a great influence on the young guys in the back like denzel ward greedy williams grant delpit um if you look at the history of the dbs that joe woods has coached in the league it is incredible going back to like ronde barber and brian kelly in tampa bay um you know the no flies zone in, in denver last season what he did with that secondary in San Francisco, which had been a, just a bloody unit uh, in previous years. And uh, their slot corner, K1 Williams had, who used to play for the Browns, had mm -hmm. a season. Um, the, other, the other safeties that they had, Jimmy Ward had an incredible year. Um, Richard Sherman, you know, continued to play at a very high level. I'm not going to credit Joe Woods for, you know, making Richard Sherman what he is. But, he, you know, and then they got, they somehow got away with that, right cornerback, just disaster area uh, of Akella Witherspoon and uh, Emmanuel Mosley. And, um, you know, so again, I I'm with you that, that their, their biggest question mark by far is linebacker. And I'm fascinated to see what they do there. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I just, I, I see them gathering versatile pieces. Hopefully, yeah. 
for, for the first time in a while, they can, they can look at their defensive personnel and play aggressive. I mean, I would imagine with two, two walk down corners who like to mirror routes, they'll, uh, they'll try to challenge receivers at the line of scrimmage and give the, the, uh, and if they can add somebody up front, give those guys up front a chance to, to get after the quarterback and make life tough. And then from there, you know, you can ease the burden on those linebackers a little bit if your quarterback say, I don't know. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a full-time job. Like, it's going to be a challenge. they got to overcome a weakness and then kind of add to that position over time. It's a mystery, though. I've yeah. talked to a lot of different people across the league, and everyone's like, eh, I, I don't know. We're just going to have to see because we, we don't really know what he's going to do. He's done different things. The thing that I know about Joe Woods is he's always had a dominant defensive lineman wherever he's mm -hmm. been. You know, he's had Von Miller. He's had Nick Bosa, um, among many others, across that San Francisco line. So I know that they want to give those guys a chance to eat up front, so I expect them to put pressure on in the secondary. Last question for you, Evan, is the rookies from the 2020 class. Any of those in particular, and it can be Jed all the way to DPJ at the end of the draft, like any of those guys that really jump out to you and expect to have nice contributions this year? Well, I need uh, DPJ to hit because I drafted him uh, late in one of my dynasty uh, <laughs> rosters. So I need him. But, um, yeah, I'd say that those rookies that they need to play quickly on defense are – I mean, obviously, Jedrick Wills is going to – he's the starting left tackle. We know the deal with him. But Delpit and uh, Jacob Phillips – um, they, I mean, I think they both look like potential rookie stars. I wonder if we might see a lot of Delpit at slot corner. Uh, he played about 40% of his snaps there at LSU this past year. But, you know, that's a position where you need to tackle because you're defending quick, hitter, quick hitting, uh, you know, completions that you don't want to turn into long gains. And you're basically playing in the box. And we know that Grant Delpit struggled as a tackler last year. And then Jacob Phillips, I think, is the wild card. You know, is he – going to get a shot to replace Joe Schobert. Um, I, you know, not necessarily, not necessarily like playing the mic, but I think that, you know, is, could he get a shot to play in their, in their, um, you know, in their nickel and dime packages, because that's really big, really big shoes to fill. And Joe Schobert was not a perfect player, uh, but he played the fifth most snaps of any linebacker in football last year. It's a new defense, everything else. Mac Wilson wasn't great as a rookie. Uh, Taki Taki barely played. So I think that that's, you know, this is something that I think an analytically driven front office would do. You know, it would be careful not to overspend at off-ball linebacker. But it obviously prevents great opportunities for the offense if those guys are a step slow or if they're, if they're out there playing confused. You know, I think that when I look at the Browns' defense, I think, wow, um, it has a chance to be very, very disruptive. I think it has a chance to be a very, very good just sheer pass defense. I don't think it needs to be dominant against the run. And then I worry that it's going to get picked apart by tight ends, by uh, slot receivers, and by um, running backs out of the backfield. You've accentuated my fears, my friend. I, uh, <laughs> I, have, I have a lot of those concerns. And I, I'm hoping – and this isn't meant to be a podcast that just tells Browns fans that everything's great. Like, those are real concerns. And – They've been concerns for a while, and, and it has it has crossed over different regimes, and it might not be a perfect fix in year one of Joe Woods and and, and Evan and um, Andrew Barry's you know plan for this whole thing. It might take multiple years, but they have to find a way to make the immediate uh, work, and they have to find a way to hide those linebackers, and hopefully that turns into some sort of hyper aggression. And like you said, Grant Delpit can become something in the slot so that they're not relying on Kevin Johnson, who has been unreliable his whole career. So fascinating stuff. Evan, man, this was money. I appreciate you taking some time. Thanks so much for having me, Jake. Okay, we're going to switch gears real quick. We did this interview with Stephen Thomas, Brown's Daily Mock, on the OBR Newswire pod earlier this week about our five toughest, most brutal losses we can recall in our lifetime. His, his, uh, his were very much predating mine, but I think it was a really fun interview that I'm, I'm not sure everybody got a chance to listen to, so I'm going to attach it here at the end, and um, hopefully you guys enjoyed it. It runs for about 40 minutes, so it's pretty long, but if you're interested in reliving some Browns losses, some of the tough losses over the last 20, 30, 40 years, we have you covered. So again, we recorded this earlier in the week. It was posted on the other um, OBR Newswire podcast channel, but again, I'm going to post this one here, so I hope you guys enjoy so I had actually implanted an idea in your mind about maybe doing the five worst losses the Browns have had in their in their we could stretch it as far back I said in each of our lifetime so um, right uh, you know and I, I have my list ready do you have do you, do you have yours do you want to do that I do yeah how okay. do you want to do it? you want to go uh, one by one just start at five and and then go to four and three each 
Yeah, we'll let's, let's one one. change. Right. So, so I'll preface this by saying most of mine, actually, I can't say most. I'll remove that word. All of mine come after 1999. I was born in 1989, so I do not have any of the uh, terrible 80s memories. I barely remember the Browns making the playoffs and in uh, pre, you know, before they left '94, I, I I barely have that memory, um, so I can't I can't even with with a, you know, with with an honest bone here say that I, I well, the worst game I remember, I've watched those games I've went back and watched them, right? I just didn't live them, so I would like to to kind of like where I come from. So there's there's my my top five, and again, yours are going to be different from mine because you live some of those terrible memories. I, I right. unfortunately did not. So. My, my first one is the franchise return. September 12th, 1999. This is week one, 1999. They come oh, back. God. Everybody's pumped up, right? I'm I'm 10 yep. years old at the time. Okay? I'm like, holy shit, man. The freaking Browns are back. This is unbelievable. I actually didn't think I'd ever see it. And they're back. Here are the notes I have on the game. Pittsburgh, 43 to nothing. I'm a 10-year-old thinking, holy shit, man. Like, I thought this was <laughs> going to be a little bit easier than this. Ty Detmer for the game, right? He th- <laughs> these stats are hilarious. I'm sorry. This is again tied for fifth. I have one more that this I'm cheating a little, but that's okay. For the game, Pittsburgh goes for 464 total yards. And your guess on how many yards the Browns went for? Uh, I think it was under 100 because they only had one first down. Right? It was 40. They went for 40 total yards. Yeah. 52 yeah. tied Detmer passing yards. Six completions on 16 attempts. He actually lost 21 yards on three sacks, so they only threw for 30 yards. They had nine rushing yards, five total carries by their lead back, Terry Kirby, four turnovers. Tim Couch 0 for 3 with a pick. This unbelievable first game back in the league. The, the, I could I just couldn't imagine I couldn't imagine being there. Did you happen to come back and go to that one or were you I was there. I was yeah. there. There's actually there's a picture uh from that night and I always laugh about it cuz it's our section. It's my section of the dog pound. You can see my best friend uh, at the time right next to me. You can see everybody that I sat around. Guy two rows in front of us is holding up a giant dog bone covering my face. I'm the <laughs> only person <laughs> In my section that you can't see. I swear to you that is true. I can find it and tweet it to you uh, once this airs. But, yeah, if you remember, here's what I remember about that. Uh, Like you said, we were fired up. I mean, you know, Drew Carey came out and, you know, every people making fun of Cleveland, you can shut up. Place was just ballistic. Steelers got the ball first. We stopped them on fourth and inches. And the place went bananas. Our first offensive play was, I, I'm almost positive it was a screen pass, but I know we got a first down. It was like 11 yards. And that was it. The rest of the game was an absolute nightmare. I remember in the middle of the third quarter, my friend, Mark Trucks was his name. He turned to me. He, he goes, I want my goddamn money back. <laughs> the thing is, how many times have we said that since? Anyway, those are great oh. notes. Just, just fantastic stuff. I just remember sitting on my couch, staying up for the game, a young kid, obviously, and just being like, well, this fucking sucks. Like this is like well, this oh, is this can't God. this can't be it. And that so that one really always resonates with me. The second one that I have tied for fifth, just in games that didn't mean much at the time, um, and had more of a personal connection to me. So I didn't. We lived in in just north of Columbus, so it was it was a haul up to Cleveland for us. And and my dad drove truck all the time, so we didn't get an opportunity to go to very many games. Obviously consumed as much as I could from my couch, but I think we went to a preseason game in like 2002, I believe it was Washington, and we hadn't been to a regular season game, so I was super excited. I'm in high school, it's 2005 now, and uh, we go up there, it's December 24th, 2005, Christmas Christmas uh, gift I received from my family, and it's freezing cold, Pittsburgh wins 41 to nothing. My first real experience <laughs> in the stadium, right? <laughs> And this is this again. This is six years later. This is, here are the similarities: 457 Pittsburgh yards, 186 for Cleveland. Ben dominated the game just as young Ben could, avoiding sacks and, and holding on to the ball and all that shit. But Bettis and Willie Park. Willie Parker had this 80-yard touchdown run right into my face, and and uh, Charlie Fry had <laughs> Fry, Charlie Fry took eight sacks on the day. So yeah, that was my first like. Oh. I, I really think that that was when I said, I, I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. Like, am I, should I be doing this? Um, so, yeah, you know, I didn't get to any of the 01, 02, and they started to really kind of pick it up a little bit. But, you know, and then I go in 05, and it's just, they, they came into the game like, I don't know, I think Cleveland was 
two and nine they or two and eight they left it two and nine it was a game that came in terrible and left terrible but it just like resonates with me i'll never forget being so freaking cold and watching pittsburgh just dominate the shit out of them <laughs> merry christmas yeah man. so yeah you're you're up number five uh, I've actually got a quick honorable mention. Uh, it's oh, no, 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 no. Save that. Save that. We're going to do honorable mentions at the end. I got, okay. I got a slew right. of them. Okay. So All right. So uh, then my number five is the uh, playoff game against the Dolphins in 85. Everybody knows about the blown 21-3 to lead. Uh, and all of that stuff. And they were eight and eight. And yes, they were the first eight and eight team. And, you know, maybe they shouldn't have been there. Maybe they should. Yada, yada, yada. But here's, here's what I remember about that. Yes, they had a 21 to three lead and they blew, they blew it. And, you know, Marino was Marino and the dolphins were the number one seed and everything else. But there was like eight minutes, give or take left. And they were still ahead. It was 21 to 17 and the dolphins defense was getting tired. They were running all over them. They had a third and two just inside Miami territory, like the 45-yard line or something like that. And Curtis Dickey ran the wrong play and got stopped. And had they continued that drive, you know, they were marching. They were were getting ready to put it away. And then the worst part was they they punted on fourth down. Uh, Miami fumbled it. And you remember a couple of years ago, the Duke Johnson game where he came out of the ball (laughs) with the pile and they gave it to Washington anyway? Browns came out of the ball with the pile. And they gave the Hold ball on to Miami. Hold on a second. They came out of the ball with the pile? They, yes, that's exactly what I meant to say. <laughs> they, they came out of the pile with the ball, and they, they gave Miami the ball anyway. Now, you know, it's the Browns. God knows they could have found a way to screw it up anyway. But they would have had the ball in, already in field goal range. Uh, you know, maybe they could have punched it in for a touchdown. Who knows what would have happened? But that's what I remember most about that game. But this one only comes to five for many reasons. One reason is looking back, and this is hard to imagine people who've grown up in the Belichick and Brady era of the Patriots, but they would have played the Patriots the next week and it would have been in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Um, and back then they, they had New England's number. For some reason, they always found a way to beat New England. So I firmly believe they would have beaten New England and gone to the Super Bowl. And then they would have had to play the 85 Bears. And they would have gotten absolutely mugged. <laughs> I, the, the beating they put on the Patriots would have looked like child's play. I mean, it look, it look, like anybody who grew up in the 80s, I have a love for Bernie Kosar that will last until my dying breath. But let's be kind and say he was not exactly fleet of foot. No. So imagine that 85 Bears pass rush. And he wasn't Dan Bernie... Marino decision maker like no. that either. No, no, and he wasn't. So. No. It's probably a good thing that they didn't hold on and beat Marino because what would have happened would have been even worse. That's a great one. That's one I didn't even think you would name, and I tried to rack my brain about ones that you'd come up with. That's that's great. My number four is, um, and I, I didn't pick just popular games by any stretch of the imagination, but it's one that everybody probably remembers. September 8th, 2002, the, the home opener, season opener. Do you remember what this was? Uh, was this, uh, no, 2000, 2002 was, um, uh, Dwayne Rudd, Dwayne Rudd, 40 to 39. I remember this game vividly and how, how mad my dad was at the television. I, I, I was like kind of, kind of afraid. So yeah, it's a 40 to 39 season opening loss, right? They, they played well. Kelly Holcomb, 27 for 39, 326 yards, three touchdowns. Kevin Johnson threw a 33 yard touchdown. Kansas City, some names from blast from the past. Four Priest Holmes touchdowns. That guy was outstanding for a stretch there, and um, yes. it sucked for Dwayne Rudd, right? So Dwayne, Dwayne, Dwayne Rudd. That's a tongue twister. Thinks the game is over. Um, sack has been made on Trent Green. He flicks it off to to Tate, right? What John Tate? I think he flipped it off to. Yep. John Tate yep. takes off down the tackle. Side. Yeah. And actually, an amazing run, to be honest, and yep. gets. Uh, some yards, and, and I found a Dwayne Rudd quote after this, because there's a lot of good good write-ups on this whole thing. He said, I thought he was down, um, alluding to Trent Green, their quarterback in Kansas City. When I tackled him, he rolled over on my face mask. I looked up and saw triple zeros on the clock, thought the game was over, but I didn't get the chance to look behind me and see the game was over. He launches his helmet, as we all remember, giving 15 more yards and another name from the pass. Morton Anderson kicks a field goal to mm-hmm. win it. Um, it's really it's unfortunate because that's how we all remember Dwayne Wright. He actually played well. He had eight tackles, two tackles for loss. Coming off yeah, the yeah, year solid. before when he signed with Cleveland, he had 101 tackles in 2001. And I mean, the guy was really talented. He's a first round pick out of Alabama, the 20th pick in the '98 draft. He was an All Pro in '98. So uh, yeah, that's how the guy gets remembered, and that's how his team. I mean, people were calling for him to be cut the next day and all that stuff. I'll, I'll never forget that game and like. <sighs> 
And obviously the Browns go on to win, um, you know, nine games and make the playoffs. And I checked, they still they still wouldn't have made uh, been able to get a home game had they won that game. But but still, it's like there's this home opener curse, right? That that they only have what one home opener win in their since the return, the Baltimore 05 game, 04, 05. Is there a stat since the return that's good? Is there a stat that's good? That's no. Everybody says, oh, here's a terrible stat for the Browns. I go, well, they're all terrible, they're for all God's terrible. sake. <laughs> they really are. I, yeah. I remember, though, that time my wife and I, we weren't married yet, and um, I had been telling her, the Browns will find a way. If there's a way to lose, they will find a way. If there's not, they'll invent one. And I remember her sitting there watching that game. There's two, that one and the kick six were both where she just looked at me and went, why do you do this to yourself? <laughs> and Because I remember I turned to her and I said, I got to admit, losing a game after it's already over, that's a new one. I, I, <laughs> they've done it again. <laughs> they've done it again. <laughs> I'll never, I can't, I can never forget that game. And it sticks out to me more than Bottlegate and even the game before Bottlegate where they were screwed out of another, I can't remember, they were screwed by the officials and, in Denver or something out of another situation where they reviewed something or they, they deemed that the Browns couldn't review it because the play had been uh, anyway, this just, it always like in the, in the, in the, the realm of those like early two thousands to mid two thousands screw jobs, that Dwayne Rudd game will always have a, have a memory for me for some reason. Infamy, my friend, a day that will live in infamy. My number four, uh, and you know, if you grew up in the eighties, Three of your worst losses are obvious. It's just the order that you put them in. This is my number four is Red Right 88. Um, it was my first year. I was 10 years old. It was the first year of, of really getting into it. I was always a Browns fan, watched games with my dad and everything. But they hadn't been to the playoffs since since I was two years old. Like since any kind of memory, I, Browns memory was in my head. They were had been terrible. They had not. So this was not only was it exciting because they were in the playoffs, but anybody who was there remembers it was i mean the cardiac kids was a a, a a real thing every week it seemed like the last 15 seconds it was just heart stopping you it was crazy and they always found a way um and so it just looked like hey we're doing it again this is obvious this has been happening all year here's what's going to happen and then you know uh, as as everybody knows throw it into lake erie brian and he didn't and you know uh, cockroft has said on twitter you know i've i've made that kick in my head 3000 times since that day i've, I've never missed it i've never <laughs> missed that kick in my head um, uh, he had missed uh, he had missed a couple of field goals and uh, and an extra point already so there was no guarantee but it, it was still a better play i i remember I remember crying at the end of that game, partly because they lost and it was so heartbreaking, but also partly because I was scared. Uh, my dad and my uncles were like prison riot level angry, cursing and, and running. And I had never seen them like that before. I mean, they just lost it. And it was kind of scary. Um, but that that's my number four, Red Raid 88, another day in the Browns 80s lore that just, you know, un until they win it, None of these wounds are going to completely heal. Yeah, I, I think that as a little kid, those are the things that, that stick out. I just, remember, I just remember thinking that the Browns bring out a side of my dad that I've never seen before. And I, was like, <laughs> yeah. I could not imagine have been have been with him in eighty in the mid eighties when all the the real suffering and and happened. And obviously, Red Right eighty eight is the early eighties and a part of things. So um, back to back to the modern era with me here. So these next two are not games that were oh so memorable but if you lived them i just remember these were games that really pissed me off in terms of like i actually felt like a fan of a football team that had something they were playing for which was so rare from from this since the return there's so few seasons right. so you can guess the two seasons but it's just like these were games where i was like god damn those are games that i really wish they would have won the first one's december 23rd 2007 browns come into the game nine and five um, Bengals come in six and eight, week sixteen, and um, the Browns had won earlier in the season against Cincinnati, fifty-one forty-five, a shootout, and they had to win this game. They played a terrible San Francisco team to close out the year. They were going to win that one. They had to win this game to make the playoffs. They all knew it. Everybody knew it. They, the the odds were that the teams they were competing with were going to win their football games too, and uh, this one hurt. It hurt. I remember it really like Awful. I was in my senior year of. of uh, of, of high school and I just very vividly remember this one like really hurt I mean the Bengals 
Carson Palmer only throws for 118 yards. They get and he throws two picks. They allowed Kenny Watson, yeah, Kenny Watson to have 130 rushing yards and a touchdown. <laughs> so they, I mean, Derek Anderson throws four interceptions. They lose 19 to 14. They go on to beat San Francisco, but go 10 and six, don't make the playoffs, and it's because of the home loss two days before Christmas to the Bengals that uh, I will never forget that game and just just uh, four turnovers, four interceptions that really cost them. And uh, yeah. And it was two weeks before yeah. that that they had lost to Arizona on the, uh, you know, it's kind of tough to talk about Kellen Winslow, but it was it was back when yep. Kellen Winslow was a warrior for the Browns. He got pushed out, and that was before the, uh, um, the or was or right. was that rule still in place that you you had to have a chance to come down, or had they gotten rid of that? I can't remember. It was all around that time, but they were driving right. And he, got, he got pushed yeah. out or some shit like that. But yeah, though that season, it all had come together, but they blew it when it mattered the most. Yeah, uh, it was. I, as soon as you said uh, the date, I knew because it was just it was such a letdown because you knew. And then we had to root for Jim Sorge uh-huh. the next week, uh-huh. um, and I remember sitting there saying to myself, "Okay, Peyton and um, uh, uh, Marvin Harrison are going to play one series. If there's any chance, they have to score a touchdown on that. They have to." And they marched right down the field, and then they got in the red zone, and something stupid happened. I can't remember exactly what it was. Somebody fumbled or there was a bad call something like that and they didn't score and i remember saying that's it that, that that's it. it it's over and you know the colts hung for a while but anyway um i, I my next two my three and my two are sort of intertwined mm-hmm. so they're going to be basically one entry here um and i think everybody knows what they are it's the drive and the fumble uh the drive always comes in just behind the fumble for me so the drive would be my third worst and the fumble uh, would be my second worst. And here's why. I'm not going to go over the game itself. Everybody, we've lived that way too many times mm-hmm. uh, in Cleveland. Here's why the drive comes in behind me. It's because I think they had a much better chance to beat Washington than they did to beat the Giants. It's it's hard to describe to anyone who wasn't around there, but there was a run of teams in the mid-'80s, and the Giants were one of them. There was just simply no way they were going to lose. It was over. The Bears, the um, the Giants, and then two years later or three years later, the Niners, when they went 15 and one, it was just unless the starting quarterback goes down, there's no way these teams are going to lose. They they would not have beaten the Giants. Mm-hmm. The, there's just no way they were at. I mean, Lawrence Taylor was at his peak. You know, I mean, there was no way they were going to win that team. And everybody remembers the next year. I mean, yeah, they put a whooping. On Denver, uh, everybody remembers Doug Williams and Timmy Smith in the 35-point second quarter. Everybody knows all that stuff. But what a lot of people don't realize is those Denver teams back then speak to how unbelievable John Elway was in his prime. They were basically Elway and Mirrors for the most part. They they really weren't Super Bowl-quality teams outside of him. He elevated them which so good, um, and especially in clutch moments. So I basically the reason the drive is number three and the fumble is number two, and other people might have different words, but for me, I, I'm not saying they definitely would have beaten Washington, but they had a much better chance against them than they did against the Giants, and I thought that going in. So this isn't a hindsight thing either. So that's my number three and my number two. I know I kind of went out of order there, but we can kick it back to you, and you can do two and one, and... And uh, take the order back, Your Honor, Your Honor. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying to find and make sure I say the right thing for this one. So yeah, 2014, December 7, 2014. Browns are at the time. Um, everybody remembers the the beating they put on Cincinnati on um, was it Sunday night or Monday night football. I think it was Sunday night football, right? Or maybe it was Thursday night. It might have been Thursday night. It was night Thursday. Football. It was Thursday. I think it was Thursday, right? So then they they lose to the Texans the week after. End up beating Atlanta in Atlanta. Josh Gordon comes back, right? They go seven and four. They they lose at Buffalo to a good Buffalo team. Ends up going nine and seven, and then they host the Colts and Andrew Luck. And this is the game that I just remember thinking, this is not going to work the rest of the way because the rest of their schedule was brutal, and um, it, you could see it starting to fall apart. Right. Started in Buffalo and it continued here, and. Um, they so this one is probably now this is 2014 so I'm like really an adult at this point cognizant of all of their <laughs> history like you know I mean like, as best I can be in 2014 but like just just kind of understanding everything as it 
an older, you know, a person I'd, I've been done playing football myself and just like seeing the schedule. I just remember being really kicked in the gut at this one because the Colts, who ended up going 11 and 5, they were 8 and 4 when they came in. Browns were 7 and 5, like I said, or 7 and 4. And, um, they lose 25-24, and I think the writing is on the wall. This is the game the Hoyer was really bad. Fans started to mount pressure. Um, right. He goes 13 of 30 for 136, two terrible interceptions. They're up 21-20 midway through the third quarter. Uh, I think that there were like 11 minutes. It got under it got under double-digit minutes, and they were up 21-20 and uh, give up two touchdowns, and the last touchdown was with 32 seconds to T.Y. Hilton uh, to give – to give Indy the lead by a point, and um, yeah, man, that was it from there. Because the next week they forced Manziel in for a thirty to nothing home loss to Cincinnati, and it was literally been downhill for the entire franchise up to twenty eighteen. At that point, it was just a downhill slide. So that that one for me, as like sort of a full on adult understanding, like what the freaking heck are these guys doing? Situation um, that one will always resonate with me. So that's my number two. And, uh, yeah, do you, anything to add to that uh, massacre? Uh, not to that one. I just I remember you talked about the uh, the Bengals win that got everybody excited. I was actually flying uh, to Africa that night to join, wow. to join a ship, and I had an eight-hour layover in the Madrid airport overnight. And I was watching uh, the scores. I couldn't even, you know, get the game at that time on my computer. I'm literally all by myself. I was the only person in the uh, terminal where I was for about six of those hours. And that's where I followed that uh, that Thursday night beatdown of the Bengals. So that was it. That's the last happy memory I think uh, that we have. <laughs> like you said, it's it, it's been kind of a a, a giant poo poo sandwich since then. Yeah, I mean the Browns haven't really been like out in front, like seven and four, really out in front of the win column. Even though they've had wins the last two years, they haven't been out in front of the win column nope. like that. So that was a rare time, and you could see the writing on the wall was happening, and it was it was just depressing to see it happen because you knew. I just remember thinking like, I think that was the first time as as I, I fully thought like the Browns are going to really find a way to lose this game. Like they're just going to find a way to lose it, and they did. And um, that leads me to number one, which should be for any post-99 team is the, is the, is the uh, wild card game, 2003. January 5th, 2003, mm. they had uh, some background on this. They had lost to the Steelers twice in the regular season uh, over time in week four, 16-13. They lose 23-20 in week nine, and then they lose by three points again. So imagine that, losing three by three points to your division rival three times in, in one regular season. So, um, yeah, they lose at 36-33. They're up 24-7 with 12 minutes left in the third. They're up 24-7 with 12 minutes left in the third. <laughs> Steelers scored 22 fourth-quarter points. They take the lead, 54 seconds. I remember being young, uh, 13, 14 years old, and uh, I just remember I hated Chris Fuamatu Maafala. If you remember that name, he scored to take the lead, right? And um, you know, everybody remembers the North Cut drop that happened on a really great throw. Holcomb was good, man. Twenty six of forty three threw for four twenty nine and three yep. scores. And um, then the, the North Cut drop sucks because he played his butt off that day. He was six for ninety two and a couple touchdowns. And interesting other note thing is is it seems like Pittsburgh has just always had good run defense, like forever, for like forever. William Green ran the ball 25 times for 30 yards. Yeah. Think about that. 20, 25 times for 30 yards. That's how committed to the run teams were in that, in that era. It's like, hey, man, we're like 18 for 20. We probably we probably, wanna, probably, probably don't want to run here on first down. What do you, what do you say, Butch? Like, I'm like what, are you, what are you doing at that point, man? I'm like, 25 carries for 30 yards. But, yeah, that, that is the one gut punch game that I just, uh, as, as a youngster, I – that's the only playoff football I've ever known. I mean, I didn't get to live the 80s. I didn't really right. get to live and understand the 90s. I, I understand one NFL football playoff game, and that was it. And I wish I was older to have really appreciated it, but at least I, you know, at least I can remember it. I can remember where I was and, and all that. But, yeah, that is, that is the toughest loss I've seen the Browns endure since their return. And it's a sad state of existence, but it is the one that sticks out to me the most. Yeah, and it was, I mean, there was so much about that game uh, that you could just kind of see it coming, you know. I mean, they the, the reason they had to throw the ball to Northcutt, because um, they had no running game. You know, you, yeah. you, you're trying to run out the clock, you want to try to keep the ball on the ground. I mean, I mean, at least back then, that was the 
the thought. And, uh, you know, I, I remember, and I could be getting it uh, jumbled in my head, but I remember uh, two times that they, uh, in the late third or maybe the early fourth, that they were down uh, within scoring distance and had to sell for field goals. And when, it, when they kicked one to go from 30 to 21 to 33 to 21, if I'm not mistaken, and I remember I turned to my, uh, I was watching with my dad, and I said, that's going to cost them. They needed to get up by more than two scores right there. And he went, yep, because, you know, like you said, you hadn't lived through it. We had lived through it. We had watched the, the snatching defeat from the jaws of victory so many times. It's just, it's in Cleveland fans' DNA. You just, 31 teams, their fans in the middle of the fourth quarter start figuring out what they have to do to win. Well, we've got to do this before five minutes, and we got to do that before three minutes. Browns fans, about midway through the third quarter, start going, all right, here's how they're going to fuck this up. And we're mostly right. That's that's the sad part because we can, yeah. we've can we seen it. We've read this book before. It's it's insane how many times it happened. I remember watching Northcutt drop that ball and thinking, that's it. There's no way the defense comes through. No, absolutely no. no chance. They had no I, I, chance. I just wonder if that feeling or when that feeling or, or the date at which that feeling goes away. And, like, if we'll all collectively look at ourselves and be like, it's gone. We don't when have to they hoist the Lombardi. Yeah. That's yeah. it. It's, it's, it's like, it's just an overwhelming feeling. And I, I've told this story, I think, on this podcast. Not this one, but the other film breakdown podcast before. it. I think I went in 2016. They, uh, McCown was a quarterback, and and they, they jumped out 20, 20 to nothing on Baltimore early. They, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. They threw, they threw three. Eh, Coleman caught a deep touchdown, and... And uh, they 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 had the block of the extra point. This is the first quarter, obviously, late yep. first quarter. Blocked extra point, and Baltimore turns it's twenty to two. And I, I I just looked at my guy, my friend next to me. I said, "Hey man, they're gonna lose, and this is yep. this is gonna be a part of why they lose." And it is. It just it was. It was just like a matter of just waiting <laughs> to get, just waiting to get to that inevitable outcome it's so weird and it's it's like you know like baker and miles and nick these guys come from an odell they come from winning like they come right. from winning they Culture. know how to win and it's like that you get to cleveland and there's this unwritten stigma i don't know if it's like a feeling in the stadium or it's like a collective feeling from the fans that gets passed on to players because it, it it crosses over players like players come Absolutely. and go it's just the weirdest thing, and it's like you can't put it into words because it's not a, it's not something that you can touch. It's just like, I don't know. It's the strangest thing, and and I'll 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 run off my other honorable mentions, and then you can add to any that you have. But it's just it's it's indescribable unless you're committed to watching this team and you have done so for a while. That that feeling that will just like Murphy's Law is is just yeah. it's ingrained in the DNA of the franchise for some reason. It is there and. It has not been able to be shaken off. So my honorable mentions. I, um, go ahead. I, well, I, I will. I will up. say this, uh, and I still have to put out the, my number one. Um, but oh shoot, I'm uh, sorry. I, yeah. I will say this. We, we were talking about when it will go away, and I said I think it will be when they win. I, in the mid '90s, the early to mid '90s, I was on the radio uh, there in Columbus, and I don't know. If people remember he may still be there. I'm not sure. There was a morning guy named Bob Simpson. And uh, I was on a station with him, and he was a, we were friends, and he was a Steelers fan. He was a Pittsburgh guy. And I, I remember we had this conversation once, and I said that. I said, as soon as they win, you know, all this is going to go away. And he said, don't count on it, because he grew up a Steelers fan back in the 50s and 60s when they were the laughing stock. And he told me, I'll never forget, he said, even after they had won four in six years, I still wait for them to screw it up every single week. It never goes away if it's ingrained in you. At a young age like that. So I, I hope it goes away. Um, I mean, when the Cavs won that title, I felt like I literally felt like cinder blocks had been lifted off of my chest as a Cleveland sports fan. But there's still rocks there that are the Browns, yeah. you know, so I hope it goes away. But I don't know if it will. I don't know if it ever will. I would like to find out. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> that what I was going to say. It would be cool to figure that out for ourselves and not secondhand someday. But, yeah, go my, with your number one. My number one loss, and you know I like to sort of twist these things around. It's not actually a game. My number one loss that I can remember uh, was Bernie Kosar's elbow injury in 1988. Mm. Uh, because, and I have said this on other pods, I have said this in print and on Twitter numerous times over the years, the 1988 team, I firmly believe, was the best, most complete team of that era. Of all those teams that made it to the AFC Championship game, the 88 team had the most firepower on offense. It had the best, most well-rounded defense. Because you look at it, they went through Bernie, Gary Danielson, Mike Pagel, 
And then they signed the corpse of Don Strzok. Don Strzok was retired. They literally signed him off the couch week 12 of the season, and he led them to the playoffs and almost won the wild card game for them. They were 10 and 6 and probably should have won that game against the Oilers uh, in the uh, in the wild card game. And if they were that good with basically me at quarterback, a healthy Kosar in the height of his prime, I think that could have been the year because the Niners won it that year, but they weren't the 15 and 1 juggernaut unstoppable Niners. That was the year they beat the Bengals 20 to 16 in that great fourth quarter of a Super Bowl. Uh, everybody says it was a great Super Bowl. It was boring as hell for three quarters, and then the fourth <laughs> quarter was awesome. But they were beatable. They were good, obviously. I mean, you know, it was Joe Walsh, uh, uh, Joe Walsh, Joe Montana, Bill Walsh. It was all those guys, but they were beatable. They were only 10 and 6 in the regular season. And I firmly have believed since that day that if Bernie Kosar had not gotten injured in 1988, that team very well could have been the one that knocked all this Cleveland crap that we've been talking about off of our mantle. And we wouldn't be talking about it right now. Who knows what the last 30 years of history would have been. That's my number one loss in the history, aside from the team moving, obviously, in the history of my being a Browns fan was his right elbow in week one of 1988. So, okay, why on earth, having not watched this game back or didn't live it, they score in the fourth quarter, and it's the last score of the fourth quarter. Webster Slaughter catches a two-yard pass from Pagel. Mm -hmm. Why did they kick the extra point to go down by one? There what was the no two-point conversion. What the hell? When did that become a thing? Uh, Mid-90s, I believe, was when they put it. I'm trying to remember exactly, but there was no two-point conversion what at that time. What the hell? I had no idea. That, yep. That, what? <laughs> what? That's why they lost. Yeah. Well, that and a few other things. I guess but, every uh, day we learn something new. I feel like a genuine idiot. I had no clue that the two-point conversion was not a thing forever. No, huh? wow. two-point conversion was a college-only thing until, I want to say the mid-90s, but I could be wrong on that. I don't remember uh, exactly when it came. Early 90s, maybe, but it wasn't It wasn't around then. It was not around then. The one thing, obscure thing I remember about that game, uh, they lost by a point, and in the third quarter, I believe, it might have been the early fourth quarter, they were in field goal range, and I hate to bang on Ernest Biner because, you know, he's been tortured forever because of the fumble unjustly because I mean, the guy was a warrior for us for so many years. But uncharacteristically, he got back-to-back 15-yard -back penalties uh, and knocked them out of field goal range. And they ended up being losing by one in that game. So it, it, there's just so much about that 88 season that it's so frustrating to look because it was right. It was the height of everything. They were the offensive line hadn't started to age yet. Uh, Burning had three years under his belt. He was at the height of his powers. Uh, you know, every the defense was well rounded and solid. The corners hadn't started to age. Everything was set up perfectly for them for that year. And then he hyperextends in week one, and they just never really got any momentum going for the entire year. I, I'm I'm sorry, man. I am on tilt about not knowing that two point conversion thing. I, <laughs> people in my life have failed me. I don't, how do I not know that? That is crazy. Okay. Anyway, moving on. Good, good, good reference for number one. You you taught me a lot of things I did not know there. Um, I, I want to say it was 1994, but I could be wrong on that. I'm not I'm not exactly sure. Um, jeez, man. Okay. Well, listeners, I hope maybe some of you knew that. I hope. I could be just an absolute idiot, which is, is, is top of the list of probabilities there. Um, <laughs> I'm going to make reference to that when we list this podcast. Uh, okay, so my honorable mentions. Ready? Um, no particular order, just games that came to mind. The block kick walk-off was tough to leave out. I, I just I was just like, what am I? I was never closer to just being done with it. Like, I just was so embarrassing. And it's just like it was on national TV because it was the year, <laughs> it was the year after – the year after the 2014 season, so they got some some right. primetime games. I think it was a Thursday night game, I believe. And um, God, man, I was just I was just really pissed. Like, like how how do you let that happen? I just I was really irate. Um, week 17 of 2017, they're driving. Sean Kaiser scrambles left, throws the football to Corey Coleman. It bounces off of his hands. Oh yeah, in uh, a very famous drop that I was just so annoyed that they could end up going 0 16 culmination of all the Hugh Jackson experiences there. Um, Raiders and Saints in 2018. The Saints game was just like, what on earth is going on? You carry over the stigma from week one where they miss a kick to beat Pittsburgh, and then 
They miss multiple kicks. They throw this miraculous touchdown to tie or, you know, come close. I can't remember at this point, but it was just like that game was, I remember being just extremely frustrated that they lost that football game. And then the Raiders that same year, right, where it appears Carlos Hyde has a first down. I don't know how on earth they reversed oh, it, God. But, they, yeah. but, they, but they reversed it and they end up losing that in overtime. And then um, as recent as it gets was just the letdown of week one this past year. Just uh, just feeling like this team was going to be really good and then getting gut punched. Um, should have probably expected that, but nonetheless, that one was just a loss that really pissed me off. So yeah, that's my honorable mentions. What do you got? My three, actually two of them are, are from uh, post-return. Only one of them is uh, before uh, to my 2017 against the Packers, which was, if not the week before, two weeks before uh, the one that you just mentioned against mm. the Steelers uh, when they were ahead. What were we, what were we up, like 20, 20 to 10 or yeah. something ridiculous? Brett just Hundley. Just, just Brett less Hundley. than two touchdowns we were yeah. up or something like that and blew that one because – that was it. That was the last chance, you know, yeah. that they that they had. And I had made that stupid bet, had to shave my head and eat a bunch of Brussels sprouts because of Hugh freaking Jackson. I'll never forgive him for making me eat Brussels sprouts for a year. Um, <laughs> oh, come on. They are the devil's testicles. I hate them so We've much. We've had this argument. I love them. So send oh, all of your rejected good. Brussels sprouts my way. You and I don't eat many oh. vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> um, another one for me is actually the year before the Cody Parkey game against the Dolphins. Mm. Um, and people like to make, I mean, he's become lore for several franchises, but they blame it on him. Dude, guys, they signed him like four hours before the game. I mean, the first time he met his snapper and his holder was at pregame warmups. And then they asked him to kick and it wasn't a chip shot. It was what, like 46 yards or something. It was, it was a, it was a chunk of a kick to win the game at the end there. And, uh, and, and of course he, he doinks it and they ended up going one fifteen, but that one hurt because I, I really thought they should have won that. But my number one honorable mention just off the list, and probably because it's the only one that, you know, the rest of them were playoff games, was the uh, the Ahmad Rashad Hail Mary game uh, in uh, 1980, the cardiac kids year, because, um, like I said, it was so exciting. that entire and, and that one, what you want to talk about being frustrating, they were ahead 23 to 9 heading into the fourth quarter. The, the Vikings scored a touchdown, missed the extra point. So with just over two minutes left. The Browns are ahead by eight. And as you just learned, there was no two-point conversion. So that's a two-possession game. Just over two minutes, they're ahead 23 to 15. They have the ball. And the Vikings are out of timeouts. And they still lost. They, they found a way to lose that game. For some reason, Retigliano calls a pass play. And, it, it, and it's an interception. Vikings go down score. They got the ball on their own 20 with 14 seconds left, ran a hook and ladder for like 45 yards or something like that before Tommy Kramer heaved it up and Ahmad Rashad. I mean, there was just the odds of them losing that game had to be 99 and a half percent. I mean, it had to be. There's no way they lost it. And I'll never forget it because we were at my grandparents' house uh, in Cleveland and my dad and my uncle Ken at that time, you had to stand up and turn off the television, old guy alert. You had to go up to a knob and stand there. And my uncle was standing there with his hand on the knob at the end of the game going, all right, well, we'll watch this. And then, we, you know, we got dinner and blah, blah, blah. And I'll never forget, my dad went, did he catch that effing thing? And then they sat down and just we just stared at the replay for like 10 minutes. There was no way they lost that game. I'll never forget that one as long as I live because uh, it was just, it was a – an absolute punch in the face. It was the first time in my lifetime that I ever had ever seen anything like that happen. Little did I know it was the first of a really long book of the Cleveland Browns blowing games that they should have win. I um I, I referenced earlier the the Browns. We neither <laughs> of us worth noting here that neither of us mentioned Bottlegate. Um, no. Is is that the Browns had played somebody the week before when? They played, I said Denver, it was Chicago that they played the week before. And Chicago scored two touchdowns in the final right. 33 seconds to beat them. There was some issue that happened with instant replay where the Browns tried to go back like a play or something where it worked against the Browns to do exactly what the Jaguars did the next week. It was something like that. I'll have to go right. back and figure this out. If someone's listening to this and remembers, because I remember when I put it on Twitter, um, 
it was maybe a year ago, something about Bottlegate or something of that nature. Someone said, well, remember the Bears game the, the week before where blah, blah, blah happened? Either like they wouldn't let the Browns challenge a play. It was something they messed up. Like they had messed it up. But yeah, that game, which is interesting that neither of us mentioned that, that's that was a really freaking bizarre football game. Um, yeah, share, share with us here at the OBR. Respond. We're going to post this. Um, you know, we're going to post this podcast with – with, uh, I think it'll be about 45 minutes or so, and that's okay. I, I, it, this is a fun conversation. As, as bad as it is, it's sort of like <laughs> torturing ourselves, but it's always a good conversation to hear what impacted other people. Let us know yours. Let us know uh, anything we missed or maybe we screwed up or, you know, it's all in the realm of possibility. But I had fun doing this, Steve. I appreciate you, man. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It was. Uh, it's nice. You know, Browns fans get this. It's nice to have somebody around who gets it. When we have our own little bitch session, just us, we can laugh at it. When other teams fans make fun of us, then we get pissed off. But when it's just us, we just shake our heads and go, God, why do we do this to ourselves? And so this is this is a nice reminder, a little bitch session to get it all out here. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us today, guys. Hope you enjoyed this podcast. Thanks to Evan. Thanks to Steven earlier in the week for the recordings, taking time out. And uh, hopefully you guys are all doing well, staying healthy mentally, physically, all the above. Your families are doing well. Appreciate you listening, subscribing, and uh, always enjoying this channel and uh, following us on social media, YouTube, Twitter, all that good stuff. So uh, have a good weekend, everybody. And as usual, go Browns. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time.